Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Last week, I didn't add any personal reflections, so it's probably due this week. I asked my father a few weeks ago, what should I be doing? What, what can I be doing? He gave me the most litvish response a rabbi can give. He said, give a little more tzedakah and daven with a little more kavana. Tzedakah being charity and praying with a little more intention. So I have two things I wanted to share with you before we begin our episode. Number one, today is the rally in Washington, D.C., and I will be marching there or standing. I think it's just standing. But it's a big moment for me because growing up in Moscow, learning and knowing about the Americans rallying for Russian Jews, even though it was pre my time. But in my perspective, the Americans had both the freedom and care, desire to stand for rights and lives of Jewish people in Russia, people they didn't know, but they were connected to. I do not like crowds and usually avoid being in them, but I do believe that I am privileged and blessed to have the opportunity to participate in the one today. This is something I can do, and I'm excited to be amongst so many Jews celebrating our Jewish pride together, showing our gratitude to the people who stand with us. Will I have the guts to wear my Star of David sweatshirt on the DC Metro? I don't know. We'll see. The other thing I wanted to share with you is the idea of self-defense and acknowledging what's happening in the world today and being realistic about it. I listened to the interview with Tim Kennedy on the Joe Rogan Experience last week. He talked about a lot of truthful and jarring realities. He said everyone needs to get ready to defend themselves. There are thousands of sleeper cells, terrorists in the States, and no one is coming to save us. So I am doing my part, and I encourage everyone else, everyone listening, to be a little less naive and a bit more proactive. Let's hope for the best, but not ignore real facts of danger and the clear intention of our enemies, the radical jihadists. Over the last two weeks, I've been the proudest Jew I have ever known myself to be. But my biggest coping mechanisms have been making peace with the idea of dying for being Jewish. Somehow it gives me the idea of control, control of the life I have today and being the best Jew I can be today. I was in tears when I was buying my gun a few weeks ago, but this is the time to get over ourselves and our false sense of safety. It's time for women, men, American Jews, all Jews to prepare to defend their own families. I'm taking classes and learning how to operate the gun safely. I am not pro-gun, I am pro-survival. Thank you to everyone who is schlepping to D.C. to stand with the Jews. And Yala, let's go on to our episode for today. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us we have Dr. Ilana Heidemann, the founder of Israel Forever. And I'm so glad we connected. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, both religiously and professionally. Well, I am a doctor of Holocaust studies, anti-Semitism, and phenomenology, which is the study of the structure of human experience. I did my PhD under the uh, mentorship of Elie Wiesel, the absolute master, and uh, it was for me a fundamental expression of how I could bring together the many areas that I was quite passionate about ever since I was a little girl. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, but with this uber-Jewish identity. So being a small-town girl, then moving to Maryland in my high school years and onward throughout my life, having different experiences in both large Jewish communities and very small ones, it has been a, shall we say, fluid relationship with religion as well. So while we move in between our experiences, we also sometimes learn a little bit more Torah and prayer, and uh, that helps us grow. So I have been Balchuva several times in my life, so to speak, in terms of level of observance, but the religiosity 
and the faith and the identity has always been integral to who I am and how I live my life. So I would say that I don't really abide by any labels. I've had students ask me, wait, I don't understand. Are you Orthodox? Are you this or that? I say, I am a Jew. And my life is filled in every way with what that means about being a Jew, bringing Torah into our lives, finding our own approach to prayer. And of course, Shabbat is a whole Shabbat, but understanding that we live in a diverse world where that has to be sometimes translated differently in different circumstances we may live in. So I've really been across the spectrum on the, on the uh, religiosity levels. But the faith has always been solid. Were you raised with Shabbat? I was always raised again with Shabbat, but okay. not being Shomrei Shabbat. It's very difficult okay. in Louisville, Kentucky. So I always thought that we were the most religious people that we knew. And uh, yet it was norm to drive on Shabbat, but we were in Shul every Shabbat. And our life was dictated by the beauty of what it meant to be a part of the Jewish community and to be identified as a Jew no matter where we were. My family still is very traditional, as many American Jews are. So we, my, my family, we daven at Chabad, but as many Americans, you know, if they drive there, if they don't, living in Israel, it's a little bit different. And being Shomer Shabbat is part of some of the ease of living in Israel. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to raise my children with. Tell us, when did you move to Israel and where do you live in Israel? I made Aliyah 18 years ago this past summer, actually, after many years of wanting. But when Eli Wiesel invites you to study under him as his protege, it can delay your Aliyah. So it did for me. It was a tremendous honor to do so. But I've been in Israel for 18 years. I am divorced with three children and we live in Nes Harim, which is a moshav in the Judean mountains right outside of Jerusalem in the glorious, glorious mountains where I have an ancient crusader fortress and an ancient mikvah. And we're right on that pathway when Jews were on their way to the Beit HaMikdash. There's a columbarium, all of these pieces of evidence of the historical nature of where we live. Excuse Let's me. dive into our first topic for today, which is your area of expertise or one of them. And as you mentioned, you studied under Elie Wiesel in general. What can you tell us your focus has been in your studies and in your research? And then I'd like to hear your translation as to how this relates to what's happening now. My area of research is very unique because I tried to address the personal experience of Jews from the not just the murderous years of the Holocaust, but, but the trajectory of the Holocaust experience and how it impacted the human essence of Jews, unique from, unique from, first of all, any other victims of Nazism, but also in the unique way that it was lived as Jews by Jews. So this construct I introduced is called momentary survival that you have instead of a 99% chance of living and 1% chance of being killed, that becomes turned on its head in the context of the Holocaust, where the fear of that pending murder is driving much of the decisions that people are making in order to achieve survival, which, as we all know, was something that was truly dominated by chance in many ways, mazal as for other ways. But I think that it's something we always need to consider in terms of how we try to understand the experience as it was lived by Jews at that time. How that related to my studies with, with Elie Wiesel was that was very unique because in his work, mostly, especially in his literary work, he spoke about the experience from, as is common for survivors, he spoke about it from a little bit of a distance of we don't touch the holiness. We don't touch the essence of pain, even, of this experience. We have to tread lightly. We have to treat everything delicately. This was a man who came from a world where you didn't mention Holocaust without whisper, without feeling that passion in your, in, in, without it touching your soul. But in our work together, it was important to consider that we're moving into a different time frame where people are desensitized and people are quick 
to engage in Holocaust denial in its many different forms. And so the human experience as it was lived becomes even more important to transmitting Holocaust education so that we can explain what was it like to cope with this extremist form of hate? What was it like to survive both not only physically, but spiritually, mentally, existentially? How could we as Jews, how could they as Jews survive the onslaught of fear, despair, hunger, complete confusion, a lack of certainty of what was going to happen in the future? So I think that those elements of the lived experience of momentary survival during the Holocaust were something that were very unique at that time. And I don't believe that the current experience we are going through bears much similarity if you're looking at the Holocaust years. I unfortunately see that most people are disregarding the 15 to 20 years of socially accepted anti-Semitism that enabled the Holocaust and that murderous onslaught to take place. So what it relates to today is years and years and years of accepting the anti-Semitic rhetoric of the anti-Israel pro-Palestinian movements and that becoming socially acceptable in every way, even to the point where our own people are engaged in it. But there's a whole section of Jewish society that is living through fear, confusion of the future, uncertainty of how to cope. Where do my personal politics leave me if all Jews are now a target? How is it going to be a world without Israel? These types of really existential questions for all Jews, whether you live in Israel or not, they're on our mind, and they automatically force us back to the most well-known time period when maybe Jews were questioning those things as well, and that, of course, is the Holocaust. I think it's a mistake to forget that for thousands of years of Jewish life in the diaspora, you actually had this as a reality of Jewish existence, fear, despair, confusion, uncertainty of the future. And how does that drive our Jewish behavior? How does that drive us to become even more connected one with the other as Jews scattered around the world? And what can we do to strengthen ourselves in spite of the pogroms that will continue to happen as long as Jews are denied the human rights that we deserve? Forgive me if I am not catching this correctly, but everything you're describing that was happening, that was leading up to the Holocaust, some may say this is they're experiencing this deja vu, there is this very massive acceptance, social acceptance of anti-Semitism and hatred towards Jews. So were you talking exclusively about 1938 era or were you drawing the parallels? No, that's my point. My point is that instead of focusing on what people consider the Holocaust, which is 1938 onward, we would do better by trying to understand behavioral patterns of Jews in the decade and two decades beforehand, when they were pogrom. So tell us about those times. What can we learn from that? So what did Jews do throughout history in order to sustain strength when, when we were under attack? If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you've seen the scene, you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, and we know the scene of the wedding. And they're having a wedding, and it's beautiful. And then the Cossacks come in, and they destroy everything. They, you know, people are being beaten, and then they they leave. Okay, and of course, there's that one. There's that one gentleman who, you know, plays eyes with Tevya because he. We thought that he would. He thought he was a friend of the Jews. He thought he was going to protect them, but he didn't. And he let the Jewish community be be attacked. Right afterwards, Tevya says to everybody, okay, let's clean up. And that is a very common Jewish response to catastrophe, even when that catastrophe might be the massacre of our people. And we've seen this also in 1903, the famous poem by Chaim Nachman Bialik uh, of uh, the City of Slaughter that was about the pogrom in Kishinev 
these he talks about the severity of the murders and the destruction that took place. And in the immediate aftermath, what do we see? More Chovavet Zion chapters being created. More Jewish unity. More Jewish engagement. So one of the things we see throughout history is that when we get attacked, we then sustain ourselves by becoming stronger together. It's today like everybody's catchphrase because it's real. Because we strengthen ourselves. We, okay, what are the prayers that we can be saying in order to change the, the, the hand of God, in order to help God bring to us Sukkot Shlomesa? How can we implore him to see our, to see our pain and to hear our cries? So prayer has always been an essential way that Jews have united. And it's also, by the way, been a way of individual strength, even when there have not been the opportunity for Jewish communal gatherings. And you can think about during the times of the Spanish Inquisition. We don't have to only look at the time period of the Holocaust. It's just the most vivid and the one that was most recent in our minds. Uh, so I think that it is something that we can learn from. It is a pattern throughout history. Amalek rises. We have somebody who says, I'm going to wipe out the Jews. And then how do the Jews respond? Even in the story of Afrash and and Esther, what is it that happens? The Jews first come together and they pray and they fast. But don't forget that she actually gets permission from the king. Can the Jews defend themselves now? Will you give permission for the Jews to defend themselves? And it becomes a fundamental part of how Jews respond. And I think actually related to current events, that's something that we're going to see more and more of. Jewish communities realizing that we cannot live complacent in the face of this socially accepted expression of Jew hatred. We need to also mobilize. And I'm not talking about stockpile of guns only. It's a matter of how do we teach our children to be more solid, to be strong? Do we give Krav Maga classes to our children? Do we have the conversations that need to be had? I remember being told as a little girl in Kentucky, this is what you can do if somebody comes and says something ugly to you. And those are the kinds of conversations we do need to be having. And we need to make sure that they're not separated from discussions on how we can be proud as supporters and aligned with Israel because Israel is just and doing the right thing. And those are also parts of that conversation that we need to be inheriting, perfecting, teaching to our children because that's a part of our collective strength. So you said a lot here. It's funny, or not so funny, how you say you have to have those serious talks with your children, but at the same time, introducing those talks of Jewish pride, which is a lot of what you do with IsraelForever.org, correct? Yes. So what are some tips that parents, young, younger parents, parents with younger children, parents with older children, that what language can they use with, with the next generation? Well, so first of all, we have to realize that they're exposed to a lot if they're teenagers or exposed to a lot on social media. So they might be seeing things that even you're not seeing as the parents. A lot of it might be lies and a lot of it might be truth. And a lot of it might be some of the videos that are coming out that show some of the massacre that took place and some of what has been the unmitigated evil with which they handled Jewish human life. There's a tendency when it came to the Holocaust for many years that we would never really show pictures of the mass graves. You wouldn't see the photos of the bodies, how they looked afterwards. There is a tendency in Jewish tradition that we kind of leave out that, shall we say, um, pornography in a way of that suffering. And I think that we have to be more in check with our kids and what they are seeing so that we can ask these kinds of questions. Do they think it's important to see those horrible images in order for them to feel something about it? Because there are kids today who really believe that. Even people who are seeing the images are saying that they're lies. So how do we not show it to them? If they are being told that they're lies, then our students, our children, especially the older ones, they need to be equipped to say, there is evidence and this happened. But how do you tell somebody about the grotesque details? And again, I can reference some of them here, but 
that's a question for you, Francisco. Is that information that you feel needs to be incorporated even in for your listeners? Do you go into the physical condition of what was discovered as a, as well, there's this balance between something that's easily forgotten or something that never made it into the memory and it could be disputed. And we can see the denial of October 7th already happening. And worse, the gaslighting saying the Jews did it or the Israelis planned this whole thing and all kinds of conspiracy theories. And then on the other hand, you do you, we want to preserve the dignity of the suffered and the sacrifices who died in the name of God for being Jewish. So yes, I, I agree with you. There's no reason for us to be engaging with, as you called it, pornography, because those people don't deserve it. Those children don't deserve it. Those women don't deserve it. Let me offer you an alternative. I do have to offer you an alternative. If we don't talk about the way, the the brutal way that they were murdered and the way that they were treated even before they were murdered, then they are not getting the justice they deserve as the lives that they led. Maybe we do need to speak about this baby or that woman. And we need to talk about it, even though it's uncomfortable. Because if we had not taken a turning point in Holocaust memory, where people started to finally be able to talk about it, then we wouldn't know half of what we know today. If we did not continue searching for mass graves and uncovering those atrocities, we wouldn't know that there is actually um, over a million more victims than is counted in the six million. Because people wanted to pursue greater knowledge. And uh, Eloise once said, to forget the dead is akin to killing them twice. And I do feel sometimes with the stories that I've heard that they need to be told for two reasons. So that the victims of those horrendous, disgusting crimes are given the justice by saying this woman was killed in this way and she was treated in this way. And what's the second lesson? And this is not a beast that did this. This is a human being who has been brainwashed to believe that a Jew is nothing but an animal who can rightly be treated that way. Because what's happening on our streets is that that is what is being said. Jews can be treated this way. I can bring up graphic detail. It's a question of whether or not is it the place. If your listeners are parents and they're worried about their fears with their teenagers then how do you cope with teenagers or college students who are hearing that a Jewish woman who was raped deserves to be raped or a Jewish baby deserves to be put into an oven alive? The details, I mean, I don't... The details can be so grotesque. I could go into very specifics and on some level... Francisca, I'm dying to. I want to. I want people to hear it. On the other hand, as I was educated by my mentor, we don't want to cause people pain. So how do we transmit that pain in a way that can be meaningful, dignifying for the victim? They're getting their justice by being remembered for this tragic suffering that they endured. But we are also sensitive because we as human beings need to be resensitized, not desensitized, as is happening more and more. Which means abstaining from the grotesque details, from the specific details? Is that what you mean by resensitizing? I think it means finding, I, I think it means for every parent, depending on the age of their child, and depending on that child's maturity level, being able to initiate the delicate conversations and asking to open them up in a way that it creates for their youth a safe space. And actually, I'd go so far to say that if you are a parent who is capable of creating that safe space, you may even consider inviting your children's friends and their parents into a more of a conversation about it. Because we can't ignore these truths. We can't ignore these challenges. We just have to find the smarter way to open the dialogue 
to be able to direct people towards a positive purpose for inheriting the pain that happens when we inherit the memory of that suffering. Those are powerful words. Can you tell us a little bit about Israel Forever? Israel Forever is a international nonprofit, a political nonpartisan that reaches the every Jew. The Jews of around the world who are identifying themselves as virtual citizens of Israel. They feel united with the nation of Israel. They want to increase literacy, empowerment, and peoplehood. And Israel Forever, what we try to do is to provide content and resources and experiential opportunities so that people can do that really from the comfort of their own lives. Whereas many bigger organizations are focused on creating local rallies and events and things like that, Israel Forever has been designed in the decades since uh, more than a decade that we've been in existence in trying to reach Jews in the comfort of their life. How can we weave Jewish identity into our lives as Jews? And I actually think that that's really born from my life as a Jew in Louisville, Kentucky. That's what my parents instilled in me. And that's what I have always tried to do. I was living in Aspen, Colorado for four years, and I was you know, overseeing the creation of a Jewish youth movement and Jewish education for kids who came from intermarried families. And their parents didn't really know how to tell them even what does it mean to be a Jew? But you know, that first anti-Semitic event happens and wait a second, we gotta, we gotta call in our first Holocaust educator we can find kind of thing. I happened to establish a Holocaust education program in Aspen, Colorado, and, and was able to really engage not only the Jewish youth who had no Jewish identity primarily, but also with their non-Jewish peers who really had no idea what a Jew was. I had one student say to me, you mean those people who have the hair here? I mean, that's the level to which many people don't understand. So also when we're as parents are trying to get to current events and how do we deal with the current event and the fear and the confusion of what's gonna happen next, we also have to realize do our kids know how to speak some of the basic level information of what it means to stand as a Jew in their peer environments or when they go off to college where what call what university can you go to now where you're not going to be you know attacked if you happen to have a, a, a pride as a member of the nation of Israel it's a very dangerous world out there so I think the conversation starters are the place where we all have to begin and sometimes parents, don't need to know where to turn. And that's also what Israel Forever is focused on, trying to provide hands-on resources that can be used by parents, educators, grandparents, and even youth movement leaders. So we've really worked with people not only across the spectrum of religious connection, but also across the world. We've worked with not only in America, but also throughout Europe, Australia, South Africa, and other places, England. I'd like to segue into what's happening now in Israel. And I know you're involved with a lot of the hands-on activity and volunteer services. Can you tell us the everyday life now of so many people who are not, they're, they're not news anymore because now everybody's thinking about the soldiers, the hostages, but there are so many people who are actively suffering now. What is their reality like? I think you'd have to break up the groups of what actively suffering means. So you have those who are in the line of fire who remain in the line of fire. Not all of the communities that are on the borders have been fully evacuated. Of course, there are people who have stayed back for various reasons and purposes in their communities. So I think that there are some who continuously live under the terror of the missile fire. You have Tel Aviv people who, and Gush Dan, the Dan region, this is their first foray into this level of missile fire being targeted at them. I think that's a different type of trauma that people continue to endure. People are counting the number of dead and not counting the number of Israelis who are suffering from this, this severe pogrom trauma, as I call it, po having to internalize what took place on those border communities. And really, there's nobody who doesn't have somebody in their life who was affected, somebody who was killed at the party, 
somebody at the at the uh, nature the nova festival somebody who was a soldier who was murdered i mean it's affected everybody so you have those who are in the line of fire and those who are affected because they lost somebody in the line of fire and let's not forget that there's also now two more borders that are in the line of fire nobody really talks about and those are the northern communities kiryat shmona has been hit very very badly and especially with infiltrations of terrorists into their communities has been a very major problem coming across the borders. And we still face that also from the Gaza border, but we're also seeing attacks on a lot for the first time. And so it is, and we also have infiltrations happening from Jordan. We have a major threat happening on the Syrian border. So it's everywhere around us. So in the line of fire, and then those who, as you've said, maybe they're no longer in the line of fire, so are they forgotten? Um, the displaced families suffer from a very different kind of reality. Their houses have been destroyed. They've lost everything, many of whom have a family member who has been kidnapped. That's a whole different realm of coping mechanisms that are required to get through it. The volunteer services that have been established by organizations across the country are incredible. The unity taking place in this country is astounding. Political divides have been left by the wayside and everybody is, is chipping in in order to make a difference, whether it is somebody that is making 500 meals a day or somebody like myself. I have a celiac daughter, so I have one family that I make one family who has three celiac individuals. So I make every Shabbos, I make for them and their Shabbos meals. That's my little gift that I can give because I know I have a, a gluten sterile kitchen and not everybody can be out there at the hotels per, but, and, and providing those volunteer efforts, but everybody's trying to find some volunteer effort. There is also education, in, informal education that has popped up in every possible venue, and that's an incredible initiative. To see how there are people who are calling the Ministry of Education and saying, I just want to be able to help out. And then the, they're saying, okay, go. There's a guy who's now running 18 different programs at the Dead Sea Hotels where the displaced families, some of the displaced communities have been, have been housed. So there's incredible efforts that are going on. And of course, we see what's happening in the diaspora, diaspora communities trying to send, send goods, send emergency supplies. We have lots of fundraising campaigns from every different organization. Israel Forever in particular, we are fundraising on what we call grassroots initiatives, such as communities who don't, they are not eligible for security barriers because they're not within a specific area of being in the line of fire. So they're not provided the budget to have a fence around them or to have a gate. And right now with infiltrations being on the rise, those things are essential. So grassroots efforts for Israeli communities is one thing that we're doing. And I think that we're going to see more and more opportunities for volunteerism, even as we get further away from the actual incident and the war continues because these communities are going to need to be rebuilt. There's already been a call, you should know, that there are now 300 applicants, I believe that's the number, New applicants wanting to come and build and be a part of Kibbutz Be'eri. And that was announced just in the last day or two. That the idea is that these communities that were destroyed, that they will be rebuilt twice, three times the size. Because that is what we do. Let's go. Clean up. Let's live. Thank you for sharing that. What are some overlooked or unspoken issues that you feel are not getting the proper attention because of everything that's happening, which makes sense where everyone's addicted to getting their news. We're all looking to see, you know, what the, not looking, <laughs> we wake up to see, you know, horror stories, what's happening, but there are some, I'm sure there are other issues that are happening or being overseen because they're not maybe urgent where they're not in the line of fire, as you said. I think the education of our youth and our uh, families is waning. I think that uh, that's true not only in Israel. I think it's true everywhere in the world that we are in, people are feeling incapable 
of addressing some of the real issues that we have to look straight in the face. And they may not be as grotesque as the murders that took place, but they actually put people in just as comfortable of a position. So for example, how are we addressing liberal Zionists who feel like their identity has been shattered because maybe they're waking up to the reality that there really is no partner for peace. And I think that an unspoken issue is we're focused right now on Hamas and the you know misnomer almost of Hamas is ISIS. I don't think that many people even remember who ISIS is, to be honest. Again, it's the desensitization of this generation. They just don't know. They don't care. So that apathy, indifference, and desensitization issues are very, very high, and they should be addressed. They need to be addressed not only within the Jewish community, they need to be addressed also within a public forum, but people don't feel confident to do so. I think that the emphasis on Hasbara is a mistake to say Israel does crappy Hasbara. We have to look at Jewish leadership in the diaspora. Hasbara is basically the movement to provide information, to defeat misinformation and lies about Israel. But because it's being coming from a Jewish perspective, people are saying, well, it's illegitimate. So even facts are illegitimate if they come from Jews. <laughs> so I think that we need to kind of empower people to recognize legitimate sources of information and to be a part of that effort to, to disable the systems of misinformation. So these things are happening in organizational levels, but what I, in answer to your question, what are we missing? How do you get it to the people? How do you reach the common Jews who, I had a friend who said to me, unless you have something published in the newspaper, I read from my Jewish community on Shabbos, not on social media. She doesn't, she barely handles the email. She lives her life. She's like, unless it's going to be printed in something I'm going to flip through on Shabbos, I'm not going to know about it. And even if I flip through it, do you think I'm going to go and I'm going to look for it on Motzei Shabbos or Sunday? I'm going to go type it into my phone or my computer and look at it more? It's really hard to capture Jewish attention right now. Again, people love dead Jews. So... We've captured a lot of people's attention because there are so many dead Jews, but that's going to fade. And we have to figure out a way to keep our conversations going, not only about those dead Jews, but about the Jewish rights that were violated and those dead Jews are evidence of that violation. The violation is happening every minute of every day. The White House was desecrated, the synagogues, the schools, the my around the corner from my sister's houses, the whole fence, death to Jews with a star of David on a hangman, show Jews no mercy. I mean, it's everywhere. So this is what needs to be addressed. How can we be what I call Israel strong? The same Israel strength that has allowed us to outlast 3000 years of persecution and attacks How can we find a way to let those in the systems fighting the battles, those soldiers on the front line, those families and those volunteers and the fundraisers, and they're all doing what they need to do. We need to be empowering from the bottom up. The people need to feel, and that is why we at Israel Forever have our program, our global community of virtual citizens of Israel to be recognized you are a card-carrying member of Am Yisrael. You are not ready to make Aliyah? Okay. But you deserve to be recognized, empowered, given the resources, and it can't all be advocacy. Not everybody wants to raise a flag. That's why we're wearing our blue and white. Some people don't feel confident to put a flag anywhere, but they can wear the national colors and they can learn about why is blue the national color of our people. Why is it on our talit? Why is it on our tzitzit? So I think that it is about figuring out how to reach the Jews that we can reach so that they can be stronger and feel that they are together with everyone else, even if they are in Minnesota or Kentucky or New Mexico or wherever, and they don't live in a huge Jewish community somewhere. They don't belong to a synagogue. They're not a part of the Federation. They just right now are waking up 
to their identity and to who they are as a Jew. Okay. And unfortunately, a lot of this waking up comes with terror, fear, and, and then the people who have been very connected to their Jewish identity, maybe they feel a lot of despair. Yeah, I guess that's the word I would use. What, what can you say to those people? You mean like, how do we counter the despair? Because that's really what we're all looking to do. Look at all the videos of food being donated and clothing being I, donated and soldiers okay, so, dancing. So, right. We talk frankly, Francisca, because those, th those things sure. are great and they are uplifting. Do you know what that awakens in a lot of people? Why didn't I do more? I'm not doing enough. A different kind of despair. I'm helpless. I can't do anymore. All I can do is write a check, but I don't have money to give. So I love those videos of all the mitzvot. And I love the videos of all the soldiers singing. I had somebody say to me just the other day, okay, a diaspora Jew, that they love the videos of the soldiers singing, but they don't understand. Are the soldiers not taking the war seriously? How can they be so happy? So now, again, I was able to talk her through and give the explanation of why this is such an important thing to keep the morale of our soldiers up when they know that they are fighting this horrible enemy who has committed the catastrophe that, that we all can't stomach and can't even think about. But I, I think that we forget we need some of that morale ourselves. We forget that if I don't know the songs and if I don't know the prayers, well, then what am I? It's not, that's not really the way we need to be. We need, can find the prayer. We can find a way of expressing ourselves and lifting our own morale. So I think that to defeat despair, like we've said every year on Hanukkah, we have to have our light. And, and like we learn from the generations before us, each of us has a spark. And we have to fan that small flame so that we can be the lamplighter for other people. We can spread the light to other people who are feeling despair. And just by helping that person, our own despair gets decreased. That's the beauty of seeing the mitzvot being done because we see somebody else doing it. So how can we do that in our own communities? You can reach out to friends that you haven't ever reached out to. I have a friend who said to me, and again, intermarried family, intermarried family, very challenging reality right now for them. And his kid is on a swim team. And his, he said to him, don't you have other Jewish kids on your swim team? And he said, you need to go find those other boys. And the boy, and the son says, but they're not my friends. And he says, you go and you find them. And you make them your friends. Because in this situation, those four kids, four Jewish 13-year-olds, they, they have each other and they need to know that they are their own community. That's part of how we can defeat that despair. Now, I want to address your question of how to defeat that fear. We all sing the song that the world is a na very narrow bridge and the most important thing is not to be afraid. Sometimes we have to say to ourselves, we're not afraid and that's the only way to stop the fear, even if we are afraid. And it's okay to be afraid. That's also another thing we have to give ourselves, the right to be afraid, the right to think about, oh my God, this is the worst it could be. And you know what? Actually makes me much more grateful for what we have. So for us in Israel, I can tell you that the fear is palpable. There are the threats of wiping out Israel growing day after day. The reality of the missile fire growing day after day. But you know what we have? We have those who are, if you can hear them, they're flying above me even now, the fighter jets that are defending us and the soldiers who are out there fighting for us and fighting for Jewish freedom in our ancestral homeland, that mitigates the fear. In the diaspora, I think the way to reduce the fear is by creating conclaves of support systems and finding ways to strengthen your connection and understanding about Israel's morality and justice so that no lie will ever penetrate you and you'll know we will overcome this as well. We have a great thousands year legacy. This is not the end of Israel's destiny. This is a challenge Hashem is giving us to find more opportunities 
for unity, empowerment, and saying, what is our next generation going to inherit when it comes to the great stories of Jewish survival? We are all a part of that. I wanted to go back to something you said that the progressive Jews who believed in peace and everything else they believed in, how their beliefs are shattered. Can you talk more to that? I would love to say that it's everybody. I don't think it is. We've seen the pictures of grandchildren of survivors holding up signs that say, my grandparents didn't survive Auschwitz for Israel to commit a genocide, which we know is an absolute outright lie. I think that there are people who were swayed by the concept of the pro-Palestinian movement being a social justice endeavor and only now are realizing that the calls from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is basically the call to wipe out Israel and the Jewish people. And as we've seen now, that October 7th massacre is actually being called to be repeated on every Jew in every community in the world, they have no choice but to wake up and say, wait a second, where do we draw the line in supporting this so-called pro-Palestinian movement? Maybe it isn't about social justice. And let's remember, by the way, when the Nazi party started in the early, uh, in the late 19 teens, so in 1919, Hitler wrote his first letter, his first public letter, and he he writes about all we need is logical, not not emotional anti-Semitism, but rational, logical anti-Semitism. And then everybody will join in our effort for what was called Entfernung, the removal of the Jew, the elimination of the Jew. Very little difference between that and the calls of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So some liberal Jews who would never have called themselves Zionists are having to wake up and say, wait a second, maybe I need to relearn some of the things that had been taught to me that I thought were a correction of the Jewish education I got where they, you know, they say that they were brainwashed by a, by an unnuanced education about Israel. Right. So I think that that's one part. The other part are the people who were actually identifying with left-wing movements. For example, I just actually met with somebody who used to be a officer of the Shalom Achshav, the Peace Now movement. And they said, I no longer, in the light of this event, he can no longer align himself with these extremist left-wing movements who are unwilling to recognize that Jewish rights are human rights, just as the rights of the Arab population who calls themselves Palestinians. Thank you for addressing that. And something to what you were saying before, I've heard people saying, can we just skip to the place where we have a Suda to remember what happened? Let, let's skip to the victories and let it become a new Chag. And that plays into this is our history. This is the cycle of what our nation goes through. We, we get persecuted we wake up, we unite, we connect back to our identities. Then we get comfortable, forget, then we, then we get that wake up call again. And then Behold we Arvador. forget. There's always that word, right? They, they came to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. Let's eat. Exactly. So let's get to the eating part. Yeah. Okay. On that note, is there anything you'd like to share before we wrap up? Well, I think to tie in all the different topics you've raised that, that, that you, you've brought up today in your questions, I think it would be good to say that the, the same element of needing to be able to have these difficult conversations in our homes in order to, as we've said, mitigate fear, address the issue of the grotesque, the evil, the banality of evil in our homes. I also think that we don't want to forget the parents of little children who can feel our stress and they can feel our pain. So how do we discuss it with them? I want to tie that into your last question, which is about those Jews who have find themselves now on the line of their previous political leanings, so to speak, because I think that there are a lot of homes where that is now a struggle as well. Maybe some members of the family are feeling one way and others the other. So much like politics divided families, what we want and what I believe we need to encourage are more families using this as a situation to bring conversations to life again, 
Don't let the differences of opinion stop the conversation, but let's figure out how to have it in a peace-directed, calm way so that our goal is to strengthen one another, whether that's parent to child, grandparent to, or peer to peer. Um, and I do think those peer to peer discussions are very important. I think it's commendable that you've got a podcast going where you're able to reach people who maybe they haven't found some other source of inspiration that feels as peer to peer as you're trying to create in these dialogues. So I would say that all of the topics that you've raised today and that you've asked about are ones that, that they can be brought up and they don't have to be uncomfortable. And if there are questions to be asked, there are ways uh, that you can ask. There are people you can turn to. I do encourage anyone to come and visit israelforever.org and to see how we could be of help. Maybe there's something that you're looking for and we could serve your family, your community in a better way to make real conversations happening because there are real challenges that we're facing to be a Jew today. So kona uh, kavod to you and your community for coming together. And I really hope that the result of this terrible crisis that we're facing is stronger unity and stronger recognition that we are a part of a huge historical destiny. We're living it out as we speak. So when we have our memorial ceremonies, and right now it's the 30th, we're passing Shloshim. So everybody's having ceremonies and every now it'll become an annual, I'm sure. But, um, I think that we need to remember to keep alive the discussion of why is this a violation of Jewish rights? How am I using my voice and even my home life to make sure that every generation of Jews understand whatever your politics, Jews have rights and we need to stand up for them and we need to band together. And we need to be able to make sure that our grandchildren's grandchildren are able to carry on the legacy with as much pride and dignity and honor as those who survived these catastrophes and those of us who have inherited the memory and do want to see a future for Israel forever. Amen. Thank you so much. And good luck to you with everything. Thank you so much for having me. It's really very cool. <laughs> this is a Jewish coffee house podcast. So if you enjoy the Francisca show, you probably will enjoy the other podcasts on Jewish Coffee House Network. Thank you for listening until the end. And yes, Dr. Ilana Heidemann is the founder of IsraelForever.org, which is the campaign I've been pitching to you and talking to you about over the last few weeks, singing Jewish songs, wearing blue and white, posting them on social media, or just sending them to her for them to go out to all these virtual Israeli citizens of israelforever.org. I hope you enjoyed these episodes. Please keep reaching out with your feedback. Thank you for pitching ideas. Please stay safe and see you next time.